You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Uh, let's turn to Esther 6. We're going to continue the story of Esther this morning. And uh, as I was studying this passage, it reminded me of what I think is one of the greatest moments of television I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and it's great uh, because things went terribly wrong. And it was super awkward. And y'all, that's my jam. I love that kind of stuff. And I'm talking about the 2017 Oscars when they gave the award for best picture to the wrong movie. Did y'all see this? The wrong movie. The guy, I don't know, the actors, actors went up there, they read, they had the wrong envelope, read the wrong movie, gave it to the wrong people. And I found this picture, y'all. This, this is amazing, okay? Because he at the microphone there, that's a guy named Fred Berger. Now, Fred is the producer of the movie La La Land. And in this picture, y'all, Fred is giving his acceptance speech. He's basking in the greatest accomplishment of his life, thanking everyone. He's probably thanking his mama right then and there, okay? But y'all, Fred has no idea. Behind him, there's some stuff going on. Behind him, there's some accountants. There's a stage manager who's in a big panic right now. There's other officials and all this stuff. And you can probably see there, they've got their whole little red envelope there. And y'all, that red envelope's got a, quite the surprise for Fred. Because it says that his movie didn't win, that a movie called Moonlight actually won the award for Best Picture. But y'all, right now, Fred knows none of this. There's Fred, just thanking his mama, happy as he can be. And in the background lurks this little red envelope with a surprise on it. You know, so far in our story, it looks like there's been somebody winning. It looks like there's been a man named Haman, and he is winning. In fact, he's getting ready to give his acceptance speech. And you could even say injustice is winning. You could say racism looks like it's winning. But what we're going to find out today is all along, God's been in the background with this little red envelope. And it's got a surprise on it for Haman. It's got a surprise on it for everyone. Because it says that he will win in the end. And anyone else who thinks they've won, like Fred here, they've got quite the surprise coming. So with that in mind, open your Bibles to Esther 6. Again, a little bit of background. So let's review a little bit. Where we are in the story right now, death, a sentence of death hovers over the Jewish people. And this is at the hands of Haman. This has been his plot and his scheme. But even though Esther is Jewish, up to now, no one knows that outside of her and Mordecai. No one knows that she is among those people who are about to be exterminated. And she started a plot of her own to try to get the king to save her people and to spare her people. And so she risked her life. Last week, she risked her life by going in front of the king without being summoned. Y'all, in those days, if you do that and the king doesn't like it, you're done. But thankfully, the king welcomes her. And so she invites the king and uh, his right-hand man, Haman. Says, I'm gonna, she says, I'm going to throw a banquet. I'm going to throw a party. Will you and Haman come to my party? And y'all, Haman, his head, just when you think his head couldn't get any bigger, it gets even bigger because he's the only other guest of honor to the queen's banquet. And he's on top of the world and he's getting home probably to tell his family for the zillionth time how great he was. And uh, I'm sure they got tired of hearing that. But on his way, he sees Mordecai. Y'all, he can't stand the sight of Mordecai. 
Mordecai's death is on the calendar. It has been scheduled, but Haman can't wait. And so he goes home and he builds a gallows and he says, tomorrow I'm hanging Mordecai on that gallows. And so that's where we pick up the story at the beginning of chapter 6. In verse 1, we have a little divine insomnia. The king can't sleep. Now, I've never thought of insomnia as a gift from God. And in most cases, it's probably not. In this case, it is. The king can't sleep. And so he does what many of you uh, may do when you can't sleep. You go get the most boring book that you can find. And so he tells his servants, go get the history book of the kingdom and just start reading to me the history of the kingdom. Well, when you know it, they just so happened turn to the page that recorded when Mordecai saved the king's life. There was an assassination plot on the king, and Mordecai saved his bacon. Well, now the king for sure can't sleep, because he remembered that people wanted to kill him, and then he remembered that some guy saved his life. And so he asked, what did we do to honor this man who saved me? And so his servants were like, well, let's see what it says here. Okay, okay, nothing. We did nothing to honor the guy. So the king, he wants some advice. He wants to get his best advisors to let him know how they can honor this man who saved his life. And wouldn't you know, right then, here comes Haman. Now, Haman's coming because he wants to tell the king about his gallows that he's going to hang Mordecai on. But now the king wants to talk about something entirely different. And so the king asks Haman, hey, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? He doesn't name anybody. But who, who does Haman assume the king is talking about? Me! Of course, the king wants to honor me. I mean, who else could the king possibly want to honor other than his second in command, the second greatest person in all the kingdom? Of course, he wants to honor me. And y'all, this has been apparent throughout the story. The Haman is full of himself. He is full of pride. His pride has been on display at the forefront of the whole story. And what you're watching now is the last gasp of Haman's. You know, I think it's easy, many of us do misunderstand what pride actually is. Probably the best writer on the topic is C.S. Lewis. He calls pride the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self. It's all about me. And that's what Haman is full of. See, pride is essentially self-absorption. You, you want to be the center of everything instead of allowing God to be the center of everything. Now, you can do that by thinking too highly of yourself. That's certainly the case with Haman here. And that's how we usually think of pride. But you can also do that by beating yourself up all the time. The point is, it's always all about me. You're always thinking of yourself. And when you are self-absorbed, you cannot be God-absorbed. So C.S. Lewis went on to say, he said, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. Proud man is always looking down and on things and people. And of course, as, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And you think about it. Isn't this the very motivation behind the very first sin in the Garden of Eden? A little snake slithers up. Hey, you can be like God. It doesn't have to be all about Him. It can be all about you. Be wonderful. So we see with Haman. Haman thinks about it's all about him. And it seems like he doesn't have to think real long about what the king should do to honor him. It seems like he's been thinking about this for a while. 
And he's got this list ready to go. Oh, hey, the king's robes. Let's put the king's robes on this guy. Let's get out the king's horse. Put him on the king's horse and the king's crown on the horse. And let's, let's have a parade. Let's parade the guy around the whole city, shouting, declaring to everyone how great this man is. Haman's got a surprise coming. Verse 10, let's read verse 10 and 11. And the king said to Haman, Hey, great idea, Haman. Hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, everything that was your idea, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. <laughs> Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai, and he led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be to the man whom the king delights to honor. This is our Oscar moment, right? There's a little red envelope in the background all along. Haman, he's ready to accept his award, give his acceptance speech. But it's not you, Haman. It's Mordecai. And then there's this just almost comic, hilarious scene where now Haman has to be the guy leading the horse around, leading Mordecai around the whole city, yelling, declaring to everyone, thus shall it be to the man the king delights to honor. And it was all his idea to begin with. See, I think here the text is demanding that you and I answer one big, one very important question. Who is in control here? Who's in control? Because up till now, y'all, it has looked like humans have been in control. There's been a lot of plotting and a lot of scheming driving the story. Of course, with Haman, who's plotted the Jews' demise and destruction. But you could even say with Esther and Mordecai, getting Esther in front of the king and, and in the king's favor and her planning this banquet, it's looked like maybe the humans are in control. But that's not what's going on here. For the first time, it is clear none of the humans in the story are in control. Think about it. The king's insomnia. And then it just so happens they turn to the page about Mordecai saving the king, and then it just so happens that right then, that's when Haman walks in. The text is making it clear. There is only one person engineering all of these circumstances. So it's subtle. It can be easy to miss. But it's like the text is whispering to us. God always wins in the end. God always wins in the end. The man in the middle of the story, it's hard to remember that, isn't it? I mean, through first five chapters, it looks like Haman is winning. It can seem like things are out of control in the story, and it can seem like things have spun out of God's control in our lives. You tell me this week, has it felt like things are going out of control? You know, we get this coronavirus and we get this virus that we can't control that upends our whole lives. And then we watch on our screens and our TVs as people die in the streets. And then we see rage boiling over. And in the middle of this, divisions, hatred, they seem irreconcilable. God's people were made for times like this. It's in these times God's people have to remember that God always wins in the end. I love Psalm 2. Psalm 2 opens with the nation's rage. The people plot. It's this picture of, of war and, and fighting and plotting. It's been the story of human history. You know what God does in the midst of that? He chuckles. Ha! Someone's like this. Oh, look at him. Look at him try. 
because God's not worried about a thing. Because he says in the verse, in verse 6, and then the psalm, he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. He's saying, my king, king is coming, and there's nothing anyone can do to stop it. And let's be clear, that's, that's what's at stake in the story here. Because way back in Genesis, God made a promise to a guy named Abraham. He said, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so uh, Galatians picks up on that and says, you know who that offspring is? It's Jesus Christ. He's that offspring that is going to bless all the nations. And so here, right now, if the Jewish people are annihilated, there is no Messiah. There is no Jesus Christ. And sin and death, they've won. But God's not going to let that happen. Faith. Faith that God will win in the end. It changes how you live your life today. This is Paul's whole point in 2 Corinthians 5. It's a great chapter. I encourage you to go home and and read it this week, what he's talking about is God winning. He's talking about our future heavenly dwelling. And he says, because of our faith in that, because of our faith that God will win in the end, he says, Christians, we're not a people of fear. We're not a people of rage. We're not a people of destruction. We're not a people of hate. You know what Paul says we're like? He says, we are a people of good courage. Good courage. In the Greek, that's all one word. We don't have an exact translation, but that good courage, it's a mix of confidence, of boldness, and of joy. So it's not this, this angry, bitter boldness that's so prevalent today. It's a word that Jesus used often. He often encouraged people to be of good courage. You know who he encouraged to do that? He, he said that to the blind beggar, to the woman with the issue of blood, to the paralytic, to the disciples who were cowering in fear in the boat when the storm was coming to people who were in the middle of fear, uh, in, in the middle of their suffering, Jesus looked them in the eye and said, be of good courage, because I'm here, and I'm always going to win in the end. And so you know, this isn't the first and won't be the last. There will be times when it looks like injustice, hate, pride, sickness are winning. They're like this producer of La La Land in our picture here. You know, on stage, accepting their their rewards, uh, claiming their victory, giving their victory speech. In those times, God says, be of good courage. There's a little red envelope in the background. It's got God's name on it. He is going to win in the end. But in our story, God's people aren't aren't out of the woods yet. And they won't be out of the woods until Esther steps in to intercede for them. This is what happened at the very beginning of chapter 7. So Haman, after parading his mortal enemy around on the parade that was his idea, he's got to come back to the banquet now. He's got an appointment he's got to be at. So he comes back, and at this banquet, Esther uh, begs the king to spare the people's life. And the king is moved, and he does. And so she saves the Jewish people. Now notice the contrast between Haman and Esther. Both of them, well, they think, have been asked by the king for what they want. Haman thinks, the king is asking me how he wants me to, he wants to honor me. And so he comes with a list of all the stuff that's all about him, right? The king has told Esther, you can ask me for anything. Up to half my kingdom, you can ask me for, and it'll be yours. And in that moment, what does she do? She intercedes for others. 
He pleads for the lives of others. You know, this is the second time. This is the second time she's put her life on the line for other people. She risked her life to plead for justice, to intercede for the vulnerable. There's about to be an ethnic genocide in this kingdom. And Esther, Esther uses this moment, instead of making it all about herself, she uses this moment to try and stop it. And the story is clear. The text is clear. The, her selfless intercession is what turns the table. It is the hinge that turns the story is when she intercedes on behalf of other people. And it works. And so verse 7, the wheels of justice start to turn for Haman. Esther, again, he reveals that Haman, that wicked, evil foe, she says, he's the mastermind behind all of this. And so verse 7 says, the king arose from his wine drinking, filled with wrath. So the king essentially now is an angry drunk, and he is fighting mad, and he needs to think about some things and what he's going to do and all the things he's going to do to Haman. So he steps out for a little bit, and then he comes back in. When he comes back in, in verse 8, he sees Haman on the couch with Esther. He thinks Haman is attacking Esther. He's not. He's pleading for his life because he understands finally what's going on. But what he's done is breaking the law, and it is culturally outrageous. It is a big no-no what he has done. So they had a law. There's, There's a law that said no male could be alone in the same room with a member of the king's harem. And so what you were required to do by law is when the king left, you left. That's what you're supposed to do. And even if you were in the same room with a crowd, no male could be less than seven steps from any member of the king's harem. The king walks back in. He sees Haman violating these laws. He sees his audacity. And that's all the excuse the king needs at this point. And so he says, he's so audacious that he's going to assault my queen. And Haman hears him say that. And it's almost poetic the way the text says it in verse 8. He says the king, it says the king's words covered Haman's face. That's the moment Haman knows judgment is here. And it's written all over his face. That's what the text is saying. Let's read the last couple of verses of chapter 7. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman prepared for Mordecai whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Y'all, the irony, this is the thickest irony you will find in literature everywhere. The king's like, we're, we're done with this guy. And the servant's like, well, when you know it, it just so happens we got some gallows right here, hot off the presses. So the king says, the king issues sure, hang him on that. Hang him on his own gallows. I want everyone to pay attention to this. This is the eventual end of all of your pride. Your pride wants to hang you on your own gallows. Your pride wants to hang you on your own gallows. Because hanging gallows, Ultimately, y'all, they were not built with wood or saw or nails, or I don't know, I'm not a craftsman, whatever they used back then to build gallows. Haman's gallows were ultimately built by his pride. C.S. Lewis says about pride, he says it makes you insatiable. So he says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, 
only out of having more of it than the next man. Greed may drive men into competition if there's not enough to go around, but the proud man, even when he has got more than he could possibly want, will try to get still more just to assert his power. You know, there's no reason for Haman to build his gallows. No reason whatsoever. Again, Mordecai's death is on the calendar. It is scheduled. Plus, in addition to that, Haman's the second in command. He's the king's right-hand man. He has successfully engineered everything he could ever possibly want, but it's not enough. Why is it not enough? Because one day he saw one man unwilling to bow his knee, and he couldn't stand it, and he had to have more. I saw a modern day example of this recently. ESPN did a documentary on Lance Armstrong. And it's really good if you see this, but man, it is eye opening. I didn't I learned something. I didn't know. I did not know that Lance Armstrong had retired and gotten away with everything. All of his cheating, all of his lying, all of his doping, he had gotten away with it. He was the one of the richest people in America, one of the most recognizable faces. He was on top of the world and retired. Anyone who had ever accused him had been sued or silenced. He won. And then he comes out of retirement. He decides to come out of retirement. And everyone begs him not to. They said, what are you doing? They're, look, they're on to you. They're going to come after you. If you do this, you're going to get caught. Just You won everything. Lance, just, just stay retired. But he couldn't stand it. And so he came out of retirement, and that's when he got caught. And that's when he lost everything. So they, they interview him, and they ask him, what? Why did you do that, Lance? Why did you come back? And he said, you know what? Because I was watching the Tour de France on TV. And I saw that a guy named Carlos Sastre won. And Lance said, how can they let that guy win? He isn't worthy. And you know what? If he can win, I can win. Keep in mind, this is a guy who's already won more Tour de France races than anyone else in human history. But his pride couldn't stand the thought of somebody else winning even one. Can't stand it. And so his pride hung him on his own gallows. And you need to know you are not different. I know we like to think we are different, but we are not. Here's the truth, what the Bible tells us about ourselves. There's a little bit of Haman in all of us. There's a little Haman in all of us. I know, it's an ugly truth, but it's real. We like to push it aside. We like to ignore it. In fact, C.S. Lewis says one of the most dangerous things about pride is how unaware of our own pride that we are. He says this, he says, Pride is the one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of. The way pride works, it's kind of like carbon monoxide. It's self. It can be killing you and destroying you without you even knowing that it's there. And so if you think you're the exception, listen, be careful. And I know, I know how easy it is. I have these inner monologues too where you think you're right, they're wrong. There's an excuse for what you did. There's no excuse for what they did. You're innocent, they're guilty. You're righteous, they're evil. But beware of your pride what Paul says in Romans 3, he decides to do a little math. He says, we're going to do uh, some calculations here. We're going to add up all the people in human history who have sought God. 
and on their own who have understood him and, and who are righteous. And so he gets out his abacus or whatever they had back then, does all the calculations, and you know what number he comes up with? Zero. Zero. No one is righteous, it turns out. In fact, he says, all of us, every single one of us, in our pride, have rebelled against God and decided we want it to be about ourselves, not about Him. And so the, what the Bible says is, we are all in the same position as Haman. Every one of us. The king is right in judging us. Now, there was no escaping judgment for Haman, was there? How can we escape judgment? Can we? Is there a way to escape the rightful judgment of the king? If there is, it has to be through an intercessor. Someone who intercedes for us, and it better be a better intercessor than Esther. That's kind of hard to say. Because, y'all, it's one thing to plead for the lives of innocent people, right? It is a whole different animal to plead for the lives of guilty people. But that is exactly what Jesus does. He intercedes for us. And here's how he's better than Esther. Here's what he does. He goes to the king. He pleads for your life. He pleads for the king's mercy, for the king to spare you. And then he says, do it by putting me on the gallows. Those gallows that they built with their own pride, I'll get on them. So what we get is not the wicked, evil foe on a tree. We get the innocent son on a tree. And that is how you and I live. That is how Jesus intercedes for us. This is what Paul talks about in Colossians 2. It says, through the cross... Through Jesus going to the cross for us, he canceled the debt that was against you. He disarmed death and judgment. He triumphs over them. So there's no more accusation against you. He has won. You were dead in your sins, but by taking your judgment, he made you alive. What Colossians 2 is saying, men and women, is that the cross is how Jesus wins in the end. The cross is how God wins in the end. And i got to be honest, y'all, thinking through this passage and watching the news this week, I think the world is desperate for Christians to really believe this. I heard an interview with a psychologist, totally secular psychologist, not a, a person of faith at all, but he said this, he said, Christians have vital moral resources that our culture urgently needs. Here's how I would say it. The things that overcome injustice, racism, hatred, hostility, pride in all its form, the things that overcome that, the only place the world can get those things is from sinners saved by grace. When we, when we realize that we, are in, we were enemies of God, but Jesus went to the gallows for us, what happens? Well, are you willing to love your enemies? You better believe it. Because I realized that my sin was so bad, Jesus had to die for it. And you know what? He died for that person too. Are we willing to face challenges with good courage? You better believe it. Because you know what? If Christ is for us, who can be against us? Romans talks about, listen, if God didn't spare his own son, then he will not spare anything to make sure that he wins in 
the end. So, of course, we can be of good courage. Are we able to walk in humility instead of pride? You better believe it. Because we realize, you know what? It turns out I'm not that big of a deal after all. All things are by Him and through Him and for Him. And are we willing to intercede for others like Esther? You better believe it. In fact, that's Paul's whole point as he closes out 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because after he says we're a people of good courage, because of our faith that God will win in the end, he says, you know what, because of that, you have a new job title. You know what your new job title is? You are his ambassador. You are a minister of reconciliation. You become a peacemaker between God and man and between one another. Tell me, men, isn't that what our world Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.